And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Connor Matcher. I'm the deputy political editor at the paper. With me this week, we have Hannah Brown, who's our political correspondent and a special guest, a returning special guest in the form of uh, our world editor, Jane Bradley. Welcome to both of you. Um, how are we doing today? I'm not too bad. Thanks, Connor. How are you? Thank you. Such energy, such passion for, for the week. I'm quite happy to see a, um, a majority of women on the podcast today. Which is nice. I know, I think this must be a historic event, is it? I do a historic first. Yeah. C- certainly, uh, certainly not since the days of the Halcyon Jays of uh, Gina Davidson on this podcast has this happened before. <laughs> we're we're going to chat about various things. Um, sadly, a couple of our colleagues are indisposed for various COVID-related reasons. But we're going we're gonna to talk about the, the situation in Ukraine, which is why Jane's here, and uh, what the current situation is. Um, Jane, it looks like there's a the continued escalation of a well, crisis and tragedy in Mariupol, by the looks of things, is, is dominating the story coming out of Ukraine at the minute. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mariupol is, you know, just to sort of recap, it's the city where there was people sheltering in the theatre, which was bombed last week. And... You know, there was children and you know, ordinary civilians hiding in a kind of basement of the theatre. But I mean, you know, that's been the one that's hit the headlines. But, you know, the whole of Mariupol has been absolutely decimated. I think the mayor has said that more than 80 percent of buildings in the town have been damaged or destroyed by Russian attacks. So, I mean, you can't even imagine, you know, what what that must look like. You know, it's just a town that a month ago was just a, a, a normal place. People were doing normal things, going about their normal business. And now, you know, 80 percent of buildings or I think it's even up to 90% of buildings now have been have been hit and, and uh, possibly a lot of them destroyed. So, yeah, um, the main issue is that Mariupol is still refusing to surrender to the Russian troops. And that is seen as really key in the attack because a lot of Russian troops are tied up with, you know, trying to get Mariupol. And once, you know, if at some point Mariupol does surrender, then those Russian troops will probably be moved on to Kyiv, um, where at the moment... The Russians have not made you know massive inroads into uh, into getting to the capital. So once more troops are freed up from Mariupol, that will be a, a big the big thing for Kiev. Um, so yeah, Mariupol is really key in the whole the whole war at the moment. Absolutely, and I mean there's something in the on BBC Radio 4's Today program this morning of you know talking about the siege of Mariupol, and you know uh, it was from the uh, the Royal United Services Institute, which is I think look at what military analysts are saying you know, talking about how the Russians are digging positions around Kiev, going firm around K- 
Kharkiv and you know if Mariupol falls as you say Jane they can shift that main effort somewhere else he uh, this guy this expert Dr Jack Watling said that Russians will basically try to isolate each objective i.e city starve it out and then move on to the next one I mean this is this is a form of warfare on a scale that we've not really seen since World War II. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think what he's calling it is a sort of sequential campaign where they're going to be, you know, moving from from one to the next, as you say. So, you know, once they've got Mariupol, if they get Mariupol, I mean, you know, the Ukrainians are very, you know, very sort of upbeat about the fact, upbeat's not quite the right word, but, you know, they're very positive about the fact they're going to hold out. They're not going to surrender. Um, but, you know, as far as Russia's concerned, if they, if they, once they get Mariupol, then they can move on to the next place. And, you know, Kyiv being the capital is, is key. I mean, there is still a lot of attacks going on in Kyiv. I mean, there was quite a lot of explosions last night. I've seen a lot of footage of that. I think there was a, a particular residential area was hit last night in a shopping centre. And I think four people have been um, confirmed to be killed, but there'll obviously be, you know, possibly more casualties than that. It's very, very sort of strategic. And no one really knows. Everyone's trying to second guess what Putin's strategy has been in this war. You know, everyone said he hoped that it would be a sort of quick thing at the beginning. And, you know, that didn't happen. Ukraine held out. But obviously, he will now be looking at a, a sort of different kind of strategy. What's the um, UK response to the current situation? Is it just continuing to batten down the hatches in terms of sanctions? Yeah, I mean, the, the sanctions are, undoubtedly, the sanctions are going to be, you know, really biting in Russia. You know, I and mean, people are struggling struggling to pay for things you know i mean when you think of all the all, all the ways that you pay for things you know if you use apple pay or you know those, those kind of things none of those kind of things are generally working now in russia so people are just you know it's very very difficult but obviously the risk of that is backlash against the west you know if you if you as an ordinary person are finding it difficult to buy food for your family and you're being told um by you know russian media by the russian government that this is because you know these nasty people in the west have stopped this you know you being able to do that then you know there is going to be resentment and it's it's difficult to get it's it's an information war you know it's difficult to get that across to people in Russia as to why this is happening and you know why the West has done this apart from you know they're trying to hurt you and yeah that that is very very difficult. Have you spoken to anyone in the region recently about what what it's like? But you know particularly mention the massive humanitarian aspect of this, which is you know what is as well as the conflict itself and the and the shelling and 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 the the hideousness of that there is obviously a continued mass exodus from 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 Kiev and and the, the situation on the ground i mean there were i read i don't know if you, you either of you saw it but i read a incredibly harrowing and brilliant piece of photojournalism um, an essay by Associated Press after the bombing of the maternity hospital in Mariupol a few a few weeks ago or a week ago which you know had these horrifying pictures of seven-year-old girls being given CPR by medics in a crumbling hospital and, you know, all, all of this sort of stuff that, you know, you do become slightly desensitised to over time. But what what is the humanitarian situation on the ground and, and what are people saying that you speak to, Jane? Well, I mean, the humanitarian situation on the ground in a lot of parts of Ukraine is pretty terrible. I mean, in Mariupol, you know, I mean, the humanitarian situation is, is a disaster. I mean, I think it's about 300,000 people are currently stuck in the city, but there's no power, there's no water, it's very hard to get food. I mean, it's, you know, it's only a matter of time. How long can can they go on like that? And that's going to be the Russian strategy. I mean, they're talking about sort of people, your experts have said they're trying to starve out one city at a time. And, you know, that's, it's, it, it must be absolutely horrific for to, to be there at the moment. And in other Russian, in other Ukrainian cities, I mean, the 
ability to be able to get food through and things like that. I mean, there's, you know, it's just going to be very, very difficult, even in places that are not that badly affected in terms of the actual war and actual sort of danger at the moment. You know, things are just not available in the shops. You know, I've heard people talking about just ordinary everyday things that you want to get, you know, otherwise their town seems fairly normal. There might be air raid sirens going off occasionally, but there's not been any actual, um, any actual shelling, but they go at the shops and the, you know, the shelves are bare and it's, it's just a very, very difficult situation all around. Um, obviously, a lot of people have left. And I think the countries surrounding Ukraine are seeing a sort of slowing in the refugees coming over the border to a certain extent at the moment, because a lot of people who could leave near the beginning have left and are already over the border. But they're sort of bracing themselves for a second wave, because if, say, humanitarian corridors are more properly established, and if a city falls to the Russians, there will be you know, possibly a bigger exodus of, of people who currently are trapped suddenly being able to perhaps get out and and just go. So countries like Romania, Poland, Moldova are expecting more people to come in the next few weeks. And a lot of those countries have said they're really struggling in terms of being able to to look after the refugees. There's been a massive sort of grassroots aid campaign and people have done all kinds of things. I mean, even from here, you know, there's been, as everybody knows, there's been collection drives, there's been people driving lorries across all that kind of thing. There's been a lot of money. I think the um, Disasters and Emergencies Committee says this is the second biggest um, sort of crisis appeal response it's ever had after the uh, the tsunami. So people really do want to help, but the countries that are bearing the brunt of it are really struggling to to, to keep up with demand. I think uh, Chechia said last week they just are at a breaking point. You know, they, they they can't manage any more people. So it is a big humanitarian refugee crisis for for the whole of Europe. That's a really interesting thing you said, Jane, about the communities rallying together as well and especially here I was listening to Channel 5 News I think it was and uh, there was a family that came on who were trying to as we know about the super sponsor scheme that's now uh, available in uh, available for the Scottish government to apply for individuals basically a family was applying in UK though and they were saying you know it's all very well like we're doing this application scheme and we really want to bring a family but it's really quite complicated this application scheme but the UK government are going to fit us as like a great noble family like well done for you know sponsoring Ukrainians and we're going to almost get like a badged honour like a sainthood but we don't want that what we want is a simpler process so these community and grassroots campaigns and, and actions can be taken seriously and can have proper implementation you know I think that's a big big concern with being able to, it's all very well to go look at these amazing communities and grassroots projects. And it, it is, it does show the humanity elsewhere in the world. And that's amazing. But like these people were pointing out on the news, you know, they need the, the backing of their governments and they need the backing of, yeah, the state to ensure that these these actions and this humanity can get through to the humanitarian crisis that you've kind of explained there, which is just, yeah, appalling and shocking. No, no, definitely. And I mean, the thing you've got to remember is that some of the countries that are taking in refugees are were already not the most wealthy countries. I mean, Moldova, for example, it's one of the poorest countries in Europe. I think it possibly is the poorest country in Europe. And it's taking in huge numbers of refugees. I think it's taken in more per head than any other country. I'm speaking to a guy who is an Edinburgh lorry driver who is, he's actually setting off this morning to take a whole load of aid to Moldova. And the reason he's particularly involved in this is obviously he wants to help, but he has previously gone to Moldova twice in the last few years with his lorry to take aid to Moldovans. It's not a wealthy country. It, you know, it was the beneficiary of charity aid. And now, you know, it's turned into a country that's having to help, you know, thousands and thousands of people coming across from Ukraine. 
So he's now obviously taking aid for the, the refugees. But, you know, that's a situation where, you know, a country that was in need of aid just a couple of years ago or a year ago is now having to be the one to, to, to give out that aid. So it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. It's not just a case of people sort of wanting to help. You know, a lot of people in those countries or, in, in, you know, in Moldova, I've been to Moldova. It's, um, you know, it's a country where, you know, the average salary is incredibly low. People have not necessarily got the money to just, you know, as we can potentially often, or a lot of people here can, you know, donate things. They can donate money to a, a charity drive. That's not necessarily the case there. You know, I mean, it's very, very much hand to mouth for a lot of people. And as we all know, Jane, I don't, I don't think you've ever mentioned it before, but you, you, you lived in Romania for, for a long <laughs> you time. You haven't mentioned that to anybody. I never <laughs> talked about Romania. I never talked about. <laughs> um, I don't know if you're speaking to any, any of your friends and you know former colleagues or, or, or what in, in the region um, about whether or not there's a worry in places like Moldova that they're next and that, that you know Putin will eventually whether or not he wins this war in, in Ukraine or not, will turn his eye to to other parts of, you know, that classic, you know, Soviet sphere of influence that was created after World War II. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just to, to give a little sort of potted history, Romania was never a Soviet country. It was it was communist. It had its own uh, dictator. Um, but um, Moldova was. I mean, Moldova is a funny one because it they speak, well, people speak Russian and Romanian, but um, people speak Romanian in Moldova, but they write it in Cyrillic. So it's a it's it's a big sort of it, it's a big sort of mix between east and west. You know, part of Moldova wants to sort of align itself with Russia historically. There is a breakaway republic within Moldova called Transnistria, which sees itself as a breakaway sort of Soviet republic. It acts as though it is Soviet times still. It is, and that's just within the country. The Moldovan government has at various points been much more pro-Europe. Europe has tried to sort of bring Moldova across. I think at one point there was probably still is that Moldovans could get Romanian passports, which obviously with Romania being in the EU, that gave Moldovans, you know, a sort of big draw to the West. Now that's meant there's been a lot of younger Moldovans have left. There's been a big brain drain. People have gone to other countries um, and that's one of the big problems with its economy. Moldova's always been in a bit of a sort of sticky situation between Russia and the West. People there are concerned that, you know, they could be along with possibly Georgia, you know, another target for, for Putin once he you know, if, if he gets his way in Ukraine. They've been in a very difficult situation. So their government has not put sanctions on Russia, which has not been particularly well received internationally. They've been criticised for that. But they are in a position where if they put sanctions on Russia and stop importing any Russian goods, stop getting energy from Russia, they will be absolutely stuck and there'll be a humanitarian disaster there. So it's what do they do? But yeah, there has been a big sort of backlash. Although they've been helping a lot of refugees and have taken a lot of refugees in, you know, why have they not put sanctions on Russia and Belarus. So yeah, very, very difficult. Let's think incredibly broad, like, like uh, how how this invasion will, will be looked back on in terms of, you know, history. I mean, I think there was a uh, there was a piece in the BBC about, you know, how Putin has re- redrawn the world, but not in the way that he wanted to, which Nicola Sturgeon's shared. And, you know, it's been written um, by an extremely well-experienced uh, reporter. And, you know, we... We talk about moments in history that you know you look back on and you realise were turning points of, of of how different countries worked together. The Yalta Conference after World War Two, the the fall of the Berlin Wall, and you know twenty thirty years ago now. Do you think that this is another one of those moments that you know the the Ukraine invasion is, as some people are saying, are bringing us back to the Cold War or 
is this a potential turning point for someone like China who, you know, are wavering a bit in their unspoken support of of Russia and Putin and that 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 whole geopolitical sphere is is becoming, you know, very in, an interesting thing to watch from a what are we going to think about this 10 15 years from now. Yeah, I mean it is really sort of shaking up um, world politics and you know the kind of power balance I suppose China's very much gone backwards and forwards um, it obviously has a very special relationship with Russia um, but it has indicated at various points it, it it won't sort of condemn the invasion but it has sort of indicated it's not that happy at various points but then at other times I think yesterday uh, the foreign minister was speaking and seemed to be a little bit more in support of Russia so it's very difficult to know which way to go I mean China a lot of its political strategy is based on economy and, you know, it doesn't want to, you know, to kind of fall out with Russia. It has a lot of trade with Russia. Equally, it doesn't want to fall out with the West. So again, it's in a bit of a, a sort of difficult position. Yeah, I mean, it is obviously a, a huge, a huge thing. It is a huge kind of turning point. Nobody wants to go back to the Cold War situation. I mean, you know, I was around in the 80s, which I don't think either of you two were. Um, I was a child in the 80s, but I do remember, you know, that being a thing that kind of hung over your head a bit, you know, even as a kid, you kind of knew about this sort of fear of the nuclear button. And, um, you know, and then when obviously Soviet Russia fell and, you know, all that sort of changed, there was a big feeling of, you know, obviously a huge relief and that the world order had changed and it was, you know, everything was a bit safer and nobody wants to go back to that. And what Putin is thinking, I don't think anybody knows. I mean, I think I've said before, you know, I mean, he's so isolated. He's sitting at the end of a 20 foot table. He's not having private conversations with his advisors. I don't think he's just keeping well away from everybody for reasons which nobody really knows. Is he sick? Is he worried about COVID? What, you know, what's happening to him? Hopefully there'll be checks and balances within Russia that, you know, it's not just a case of Putin having a bit of a bad night's sleep can wake up and stick his finger on the nuclear button. We really hope not, but nobody really knows. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind of worrying time. That's And also when we think about it, like you mentioned, Jane, you know, growing up as a as a kid in the 80s you know this is something that's happening for school children in Scotland who are who are thinking about these like really big huge issues in the world for like the first time in classrooms you know I was chatting to a teacher over the weekend a pal of mine and she was telling me about you know how it's just bizarre to see you know these S1s that she's teaching engage so much with this huge world wide issue in this huge like humanitarian crisis and talking obviously there's a lot of talk from kids who are talking about it in classrooms a lot of that's coming from parents and how they're kind of what their views are kind of aligning with and showing their knowledge to their to their schoolmates you know that's something that they're doing but the whole engagement around it just shows how history defining this uh, crisis is isn't it yeah, definitely. And I think schools especially have got to be really careful because obviously generally in Scotland, the, the feeling is, you know, pro-Ukraine, supporting Ukraine. But there are Russians, people, family, Russian families living in Scotland. Their kids are going to school in Scotland. Schools have got to be very careful to have that balance that, you know, it's not Russia or the baddies. And anybody, any kid who, you know, has a Russian surname is considered, you know, the enemy. They, you know, that's got that's got to be really carefully handled mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah. And I mean, kids are affected by it. I mean, my, my daughter knows a child at school whose family is Ukrainian and, you know, one parent has gone over to, I think, the Polish border to help bring a grandparent back. Uh-huh. Hearing that child talk about it, you know, that's that's upsetting. I mean, my daughter's at primary school, so, you know, they're, they're fairly young and, you know, it's it's a very difficult thing for kids to, to, to understand and it's very difficult for parents and schools to to know how to, how to sort of broach the subject. 
We'll move from the from the broad to the parochial and discuss Boris Johnson. I mean, he he, he was in Scotland for what seemed like about you know, two or three blinks of an eye on Friday for the Scottish Conservative Conference, met with Douglas Ross, the Scottish Conservative leader, after his speech, met Ukrainian living in Scotland called Xenia Dove and had a bit of a discussion with, with her. He then went to the UK Conservative Spring Conference um, in Blackpool on Saturday and decided in his speech to say that Britons, like Ukrainians, had the instinct to, quote, choose freedom and cited the 2016 Brexit vote. Uh, as a quote recent example. Unsurprisingly, that led to widespread criticism. Gavin Barwell, now Lord Barwell, you know, said voting in a referendum was not in any way comparable with risking your life. Um, and Donald Tusk, who's the former president of the European Council, called the comments offensive. I mean, it's for, for all the good that the UK government have, have done in this, uh, it, during this conflict, and they have, I think it's fair to say, been, you know, ahead of the curve to, to a degree in, in, in sanctions or in such, some parts of the response, at least, to Ukrainian offensive. This feels like a it's all a game to, to the Prime Minister. Mm. What do we make of it? Well, this is really interesting, this story about the Brexit comparisons. Um, and obviously there's a lot of yeah controversy, quite rightly, on in, in what Johnson said. But if we look back uh, about two weeks or so ago, what was the big story? It was the fact that there was a lot of SNP people that were kind of comparing Ukraine with independence and British sovereignty and all that. So it's quite interesting that it's coming from two opposite camps there that you've got this kind of comparison uh, comparison and comparative measures that are being taken that are outraging people, but it's it's the same, it's of the same vein, despite them being, you know, you'd have Tories at the time going, this is ridiculous, typical Nat, you know, discussions and dialogues. But this exact same thing is happening right now with the Brexit comparison. So, yeah. It's a good point. Uh, Jane, do you think politicians just can't help themselves from scoring easy points off world events? I mean, what was he thinking? I mean, it was just the maddest thing to say. I mean, you know, he should have thought, his speechwriters should have thought about, well, I mean, to be honest, they must have thought. They must have thought about what it was going to sound like. And being Boris, perhaps he just decided it was worth the backlash. He wanted the... You know, he wanted the headline. He wanted the discussion. I mean, who knows? It just seems it just seems bizarre that he would not have realised how that would come across. You know, I mean, he's whatever you think of him, and you know, I'm not I'm not a big fan, but he isn't a stupid man. He's astute, um, and he yeah, he must have known how that would have sounded. Mm. Do you think it was a means to make it more relevant? I guess have this conversation up so it would bring Brexit back onto the minds of people, maybe. Who knows? I'm really trying to work out the logic. <laughs> it's an odd way to do it. I would put it in the same vein as, you know, I was at Scottish Conservative Conference on Friday and th- Saturday, um, listened to Boris's speech, wrote a sketch that was uh, greatly received by some of our commenters who uh, have labelled me a, a paid SNP blogger, which is a shock to me <laughs> as, as, as much as it is to the SNP. Um, and uh, I think one of the things you noticed in a lot of the speeches in, in Aberdeen was, you know, after no to independence and, you know, Ukraine being mentioned, the first thing that was ever mentioned was uh, was oil and gas and, and the, mm. and the um, approach taken, you know, by the Scottish government being wrong and, the, you know, 
I think it was the the, the language by the Tories last week was you know deal a blow to Putin by uh, you know accelerating oil and gas. I think Boris's comments are just about playing to the base and playing to the core support, which he knows still is uh, is, is pro Brexit voters. I, I don't think it's anything particularly cleverer than that. <laughs> um, um, and I think you know the, these sorts of conference speeches lend themselves to rhetorical, nonsensical uh, devices like like that, which you know he wouldn't say in Parliament because he would get booed by most of it, <laughs> including his own side. We've only got a, f- a few minutes left, so I want to move on. There's a, talking off Parliament. You know, we've got a, a, a big day coming up on Thursday, which is the spring budget uh, statement by. Chancellor Rishi Sunak. I believe the the briefing in the papers was that there wouldn't be a rabbit in the hat, but there might be a few uh, small bunnies in terms of helping with the cost of living crisis. He he told the BBC at the weekend that he would stand by people, um, but warned that sanctions against Russia were not cost-free. There's been campaigns to cut fuel duty, uh, which is worth about 60p per litre at the minute. And he's also being called or have demands to scrap his 1.25 percentage point hike in national insurance. And then terrifyingly, I don't know if you guys have it, but uh, I follow Martin Lewis, the money-saving expert. I get his emails every week. He's a very handy person. And he said he has no more advice and no more help than political intervention is needed. And that is terrifying. (laughs) No more tools. Imagine... And I think he was he was on GMB this morning, wasn't he, Martin Lewis? So whilst recording Monday, and he, he was really it was great. It was such a good, uh, well, it was a good call, I think, from the, the the broadcasters to put him in such a position and kind of question uh, people such as Sajid Javid, who you know were really kind of left a bit flabbergasted by it all, I think, because they just didn't know how to respond to this man who is you know, a money-saving expert, it's in the title, about, I think he touched on disability allowance um, mm-hmm. on the show. And it, all, all the kind of answers were, this is under review, this is under review. So really, when this budget is announced, there are eyes on it. There's eyes like Martin Lewis, and there are people who are going, what, what can you do? There's no other resources and tools available to help people in crisis. So yeah, it'll be an interesting one. And, and last week, we saw Gordon Brown uh, kind of write a letter, uh, I think including a, a few other Labour uh, head honchos, uh, kind of calling for this, like you mentioned, the, the 1.25 percentage point increase in employee national insurance. I'm just looking at this. I think he said also to restore the £20 a week taken away from 6 million households last year, provide significantly greater help for the energy costs. And like you mentioned, with the, the rabbits out the the hat um, corner there. We'll just have to see what that is. And then, yeah, I think there was also a call for putting in place support for insulation costs um, and update benefits this year in line with inflation rates. So, yeah, there's there's many people with their eyes on this, this budget announcement, aren't there? There's another aspect to this as well, which is the Scottish aspect. You know, Rishi Sunak will have will make the decisions that he takes for the from a treasury point of view and of course any extra funding provided that it's on a reserved issue is going to or sorry devolved issue is going to provide additional funding to the Scottish government and Kate Forbes was in the papers um, I think today on Monday you know calling on Rishi Sunak to match I think it's 6% uprate on social security benefit um, but also saying 
that in Scotland we're doing all we can and that any decision about extra funding has to come from the UK because they hold all all the economic levers. I personally think that's a bit disingenuous. You know, the Scottish government have a gigantic budget. Yes, they might have to, uh, you know, take some money from elsewhere, but it's a question of priorities at the end of the day. And they've been criticised in the past by Poverty Alliance and other other groups for not being as progressive as they could with the cost of living help that's coming in your council tax bills. We've had our council tax bill. Uh, it doesn't include it for us, but you know that £150 is going to a lot of people who don't necessarily need it. Mm-hmm. Do we think that the Scottish government could do more? You know, I asked the, the First Minister's spokesperson last week whether or not there were any plans, and they said they were to do anything more. They said there weren't. It feels like ministers, despite the urgings of you know groups like Energy Action Scotland and Citizen Vice Bureau, which is in Scotland on Sunday, are just not sitting on their hands and hoping that Westminster takes care of it. Yeah, the the kind of excuse of devolution is a is a handy excuse for them, isn't it? What do you think, Jane? I mean, this is this is your old patch back in the day, <laughs> but um, you know, do do you think that ministers could be doing more up here as well as down south? It's 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 a very very difficult one without going down into the figures and going down into their coffers and their books. It's impossible to know. I mean, you know, we've talked a lot over COVID about sort of Rishi's magic money tree, and it seemed like he did pull the rabbits out of the hats over that period. There was money kicking around that there wasn't before, but and the same the same in Scotland. You know, there's been times when we've been told there's not money for something, and then you know when it's needed. It, can be produced but I mean obviously any any economist any any accountant is not going to want to completely decimate the savings you know I mean both governments have got to have got to think about the future um so yeah it's difficult to know I mean they've got to balance need and what money they've got um obviously perhaps as Martin Lewis has indicated the need is dire at the moment so perhaps there should be something done but yeah it's uh, enormous amounts of money have been spent in the last couple of years and then, as, as Rishi Sunak said, the, uh, the the sanctions on Russia are not without their problems. So, yeah, hard times all around. Boris Johnson's speech on, on Friday in front of Scottish Tories didn't mention the cost of living crisis once. Um, <laughs> do, we think, do we think that he understands? Do we think that the Conservative Party in general understand the, the scale of the, the threat to people's wallets and, and uh, how that's going to impact? I was talking to one person on Twitter who said their bill for gas had gone up from around £180 per month to £600 per month. Yeah, that's a price rise. I think yeah. 90% of the country wouldn't be able to deal with. No, It, it seems like politicians of all colours don't seem to grasp that this is going to probably kill people. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, if people can't heat their homes, I mean, luckily we're coming into the, the, the spring, summer months, heating's not quite as much of an issue as it was a couple of months ago, but... Yeah, I mean it's yeah, it's it's a it's an absolutely terrible situation and I think you're right. I think a lot of politicians generally not not necessarily just the Tories, but you know, possibly the Tories more than others are in a situation where personally they can't imagine, you know, being in that situation. They don't know people who are in that situation. If they're doing their job right, they should be in touch with people who are in that situation. They should be really understanding what's happening to their constituents but it's you know depends on how well we think each individual mp or msp is doing their job yeah i mean i've seen things i've had press releases because as you say consumer affairs was my old brief um two jobs ago um i still get consumer press releases and i got a press release from some sort of think tank i can't even remember who it was now so i'm not going to name and shame anybody but they basically said yeah prices are going to go up absolutely ridiculously um and our advice is that people need to work out a way they can earn more <laughs> and it was a bit like 
okay, great. Well, that's fine then. You know, everyone will just, you know, go and get an extra job or, you know, find some kind of way on the side and making money. I mean, it just seemed so out of touch. It was, it was crazy. That's great to compare and contrast to the Bank of England governor who, when he raised interest rates about a month and a half ago, went that, you know, workers shouldn't ask for pay rises or be mindful of that yeah. in order to not further accelerate inflation. Well, he's sitting on his massive salary, not having to worry about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 Hannah, that does feel like there's an, an astonishing tone deafness from a lot of a lot of parts of the establishment. If we like, hate that word, but you know yeah. what I mean. No, I mean totally. And then you've got this on the back of a housing crisis as well. It's something that I've been writing the paper for today on the back of our kind of council election series that we're we're getting into now with the May council elections coming up, and something that I think Glaswegians, and it's not really been focused on in Glasgow, because obviously if you compare it to somewhere like Edinburgh, where the prices are in the dizzy heights, but still in Glasgow, there's this huge housing crisis. And I think Darren McGarvey in his Poverty Safari book, if you've ever read it, he he kind of points to there's a lot of displacement going on in Glasgow in particular, where people from south side east end there's places where housing prices are going up because more young people who are from a middle class background are coming into them therefore locals who are staying there now are finding it really hard to just afford given new cafes restaurants all these more expensive places opening up so on the back of a housing crisis and this cost of living which just seems so like we mentioned tone deaf it's really not tuning in to what people are really concerned about but it's not just a concern it's lives are at risk you know people could die from a cost of living crisis so to you know completely ignore or like you said Connor as you had the pleasure of going to the the Tory conference last week you know it was only mentioned once how how can this be this needs to be mentioned continuously and constantly it's like one of the biggest things or the biggest thing that's happening in the UK for people to survive you know we really need to we need to have our politicians without sounding too much of a campaigner but we need to have our politicians really aware of this you know just purely speaking to people on the ground and people who are you know could potentially die from this this is huge absolutely well we'll, we'll all be tuned in uh, to rishi sunak's spring budget statement on wednesday i said thursday it's actually wednesday uh, but thank you very much hannah thank you very much jane for joining us this week um, and thank you very much at home for listening we'll see you next week the steaming a laudable production for the scotsman 